1: you <music> Well, hello, and uh, welcome to Local Zero with Becky and Matt. And for this very special edition of the show, we are live in central London with a brilliant panel of guests who we'll introduce shortly, and of course, our live studio audience. Woo! <laughs> And Actually, Matt, I think that this might be the first time that we've been physically together since uh, we got drunk for that Christmas episode at Fraser's house.
0: Yeah, and we haven't been invited back to Fraser's since, sadly. And I think it's the first Local Zero live we've done since COP26. And in fact, that was the last time I I think I saw Professor Bell there, um, who who gave us some very helpful, critical feedback. So I'm hoping we brought that into the show today. Um, And uh, yeah, really happy to be here in person and doing this. So Thrilled to have you all here. There'll be no surprise to those of you who've been at the conference for the, re- for the whole of today so far. Smart local energy systems. But what we want to talk about today is the future of smart local energy systems. In particular, what do these look like? What kind of vision of the future can we present? What should we be angling for? With a focus on delivering net zero, reducing energy costs. But also a big focus on supporting energy justice. So, we're speaking from the conference today for, for listeners who, who picked this up on the feed. Uh, much of what came up today was about inclusivity, access for those who are least able to afford, and with where energy bills are going and where they've been, that has never been more important. We're wanting to understand what the vision might look like in the future for smart local energy systems. How can we deliver those? Um, And uh, We are joined by an esteemed panel here today who I hope have the answers.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But before we bring them in, just a quick reminder to find us and follow us on Twitter. We are at Local Zero Get involved in the, the very interesting discussions over there. And if, like me, you can't constrain your thoughts to 280 characters, you can always email us, localzeropod at gmail.com. Also, if anybody in the room or anybody listening online hasn't subscribed to the pod, well, shame on you, and do that. That way, the episodes will automatically come into your box as soon as they are released. But now... I think we should bring in our guests, don't you Matt? Absolutely. So please, in turn, you've each got two minutes to share your thoughts on what do smart local energy systems mean to you and why are they important in delivering a net zero transition? So Rob, I'm gonna start with you.
2: Uh, Hi everyone, I'm Rob Saunders. I work for UK Research and Innovation and I run a big programme called Prospering from the Energy Revolution. And um, as a result of that, because that programme is all about trying to understand the potential of smart local energy systems. I'm probably one of the only people who spent pretty much every working day of the last four years thinking about smart local energy systems. So they mean quite a lot to me, to be honest. Um, But through that journey, and it has been a journey, to be honest, I've come to conclude that smart local energy systems are the difference between a net zero transition that really is super beneficial for people right across the country and a very slow and grey transition to net zero that's going to cost everybody and be quite difficult for, for all concerned. I think it honestly is that big a thing that we can really change the way that we can transition but also create a whole world of better outcomes by getting smart local energy systems right. So I hope we can unpack a bit of that over the next hour or so, Becky?
3: I'm sure we can. Karen, I'm going to pass to you next. Thanks, Becky. Um, I'm Karen Barris. I'm the Policy and Research Manager at UK 100. For listeners who might not be aware of what UK 100 is, uh, we are a network of the UK's, I think, 103 on last count, uh, most ambitious local authorities who have committed to deliver net zero ahead of the government's target So, they've put in place uh, climate emergency targets uh, of uh, reaching net zero for their council emissions by 2030, for their broader operational emissions, uh, sorry, their broader community emissions by 2045 or sooner if possible. So, for us, our kind of bread and butter is unpacking how that can be done. And I think that obviously smart local energy systems play a significant role in that. So, um, my background is very much in governance, understanding how the bits and pieces fit together. At UK 100, I spend a lot of time thinking about the role that local authorities can play as conveners of place to ensure that we have a future that works for local communities. Because what is going to be the answer to delivering net zero in a just and uh, timely way in Cornwall is going to be very different to that experience in York. And so we work with both rural and urban authorities of different scales, trying to unpack what that means how we get there. And I think that smart local energy systems have the potential to link energy with transport, with all of the things across our communities that need to be decarbonized. So for me, it's uh, yeah, understanding how we do that. Um, and I'm really excited about the conversation today. Thank you.
4: That's Thank you, Becky. Uh, My name is Tiro, and I am head of infrastructure at Tech UK, uh, which is the trade association representing the digital tech sector. What that means really is that uh, we work with some of the large FTSE 100 companies, for example, the likes of Google, Microsoft, Meta, IBM, etc. But over uh, 600 of our members are SMEs. And uh, specifically on infrastructure, uh, we work to represent those companies in a digital-led transformation uh, within the energy, water, mobility, and cities um, spaces. For us, smart local energy uh, systems are also quite important. If we uh, need to deliver net zero specifically, uh, we think that all scenarios, or, or at least most of the scenarios, include flexibility intelligent infrastructure management and cross-vector uh, collaboration between different sectors because we all know that energy demand will increase uh, dramatically and we all now know that uh, demand uh, will be a lot more complex uh, to analyse and to predict and uh, it will become a multi-dimensional tool. Uh, so if we don't change the way that we think about energy, it's not, it's not any longer... Uh, matching supply uh, with demand, uh, because demand will be uh, extremely complex in that regard. And then uh, when we think about decentralization paired with decarbonization, that adds extra complexity. So if we cannot manage to take advantage of locally sourced energy or uh, locally um, uh, saved energy or stored energy, um, I don't think we would ever get to net zero in my opinion. Jeff.
5: Uh, Hi everyone, Um, my name is Dr. Jeff Hardy, I'm a senior research fellow at the Grantham Institute at Imperial College London and I'm part of the Energy family. So um, I look after our work on governance of smart local energy systems, so how do you create the right conditions so that um, these smart local energy systems are enabled, they're allowed to do what they want to do. When we talk about what is a smart local energy system, how are we going to enable them, it's like we're saying there's a choice in whether we're going to have them at all, and it's just not true. It's like if you look at all the statistics, energy is going to become more local no matter what we do. So there's some great statistics from Bloomberg New Energy Finance that basically show that energy systems are going to become more decentralized. You know, Australia is the one that's going to be the most decentralized energy system in the world, nearly 50% of energy decentralized. Woo. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Jeremy. Um, so, so, Energy is going to get more local no matter what. So the other bit is the local context is really important um, because it, it means that there is potentially some choice in what local energy system we have. Um, that means um, thinking about what local resources there are, what skills are available, as we heard from in the conference earlier, but also choice of the local population about what energy system they actually want. And then the smart bit, to my mind is how it all comes together, because that's all about delivering local outcomes. What it could mean is generally it enables optimization, and the question is what are you optimizing? So you might be optimizing to maximize the utility of your local generation. You might be optimizing to minimize the price, but you might be optimizing to distribute the benefits in the most fair way locally, because you know who will stand to benefit most or should benefit most. So there's loads of stuff in here, but it's not really a debate about whether we're going to have smart local energy systems. It's what we think they should be in the future.
1: Fantastic. Well, welcome to our wonderful panelists. <laughs> great great to see you all in the, in the flesh, so to speak, and hear, to, and hear what you've got to say. And I'd like to start with a question for all of you really and you know thinking about what you've all just talked about some of it's about the kind of local context how can we do stuff that's right in one place and not in the other and this the smart piece which honestly I still struggle to get my head around sometimes and I don't know sometimes when I step back and <laughs> I'm looking at our local zero banner with the uh, with the wind farms and the electric vehicles and I know we often talk about other technologies in the homes and, and sometimes I just think God, I feel like I'm living in a Jetsons future. <laughs> Those of you old enough to remember the Jetsons. <laughs> um, but actually, and, and, I, and I don't disagree that this isn't you know, something that is, is kind of on our plate. And at the same time, we're hearing more and more around you know, these immediate challenges that we're going to be facing this winter and the energy crisis, rocketing bills, cost of living. So how do we reconcile these two things, this kind of very exciting and sexy vision of what we can do and this, these amazing local outcomes that we can deliver with the fact that a lot of people simply aren't going to be able to turn on their heating this winter? You know, are smart local energy systems a luxury that we shouldn't be dealing with right now? Or are they something that is fundamental to addressing this energy crisis? Rob, you're nodding along. I'm going I'm to oh, push I, that to you first. I must first. avoid
2: nodding in future. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, this is, this is about the short and the medium and the long term, I think, isn't it? We, we have to keep our eyes on all of those. Clearly, there's a huge crisis in cost of living and in energy costs at the moment, which has to be dealt with. But we can't take our eyes off the medium term and delivering the right things for the energy system and, most importantly, for the people who pay for that energy system, me and you, in our homes and our businesses. And that has to be a, a, a real focus over the next 10 years and getting on the right track to delivering that in the best way so that we have the, the best outcomes for everybody. I mean, I don't think they're at all incompatible actually. So a lot of our projects uh, are showing how this local optimization, the, the bringing together of supply and demand with intelligence in the system can save costs from from savings in infrastructure or from enabling people to take part in markets in flexibility that can, you know, help them to minimise their um, their exposure to when uh, energy costs are high in the future. So I, I don't see it as a as a one or other. I think they're entirely compatible.
1: Yeah, and Karen, we've been talking a lot about the local dimension of this. I mean, you know, local authorities at the coal face of a lot of this. You know, Pardon, coal face, wind face. I don't know. <laughs> 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 um, but, you know, I, I, I remember, it. you know, in fact, uh, I think, was it our first, Matt, was it our first ever episode that we had Polly Billington on? Certainly one of
0: the first. Yeah,
1: one of the first ever episodes talking about COVID. And that was kind of the crisis at the time. And, and you know, how do these things get <laughs> reconciled? I mean, you know, how are local authorities going to cope with this kind of
3: dual, dual challenge that they're facing? I think, well, first of all, I'd like to say thank you for the Jetsons' analysis because I love the Jetsons. I really appreciate it. <laughs> um, but I think... COVID has actually given us the experience that demonstrated how how much of a powerful role local authorities played in terms of the vaccine rollout, supporting small and medium enterprises during the, you know, handing out the relief for those businesses. So they've really demonstrated their value. And I think that that's hugely important when we think about tackling both kind of the impending short-term crisis and the delivery of the the long-term future. Because I think that whilst it, it may look like a very futuristic image, it's not the technology now that is the barrier to that. We've got some fantastic, fantastically successful pilots that we can you know, learn from. And I think that what's standing in the way is really the, the regulatory and policy barriers and the lack of a framework nationally to help move these things forward. So I think that local authorities are very clear in what they can deliver and are working uh, very hard within the constraints of the current system. But I think that the thing that's going to enable that longer term and, and you start to push from these, these small-scale things to a more kind of rolled-out, seamless future will be getting the rules changed in the way that we need them to be. Yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> Jeff, you look like you're chomping at the bit to
5: come in on that one. Well, we were talking about regulation. As a a recovering regulator, I always feel like it's it's just a trigger. trigger. Um, So so I think there's, if we think about what we heard today um, in the package that came out on the energy crisis, I think many of us remain somewhat bashing our heads against the wall on the lack of energy efficiency in front Front and center, right? Okay, so it's, um, I know I don't need to talk to this audience about it, but, and I don't quite understand why it's such a problem. But I think the broader picture, as I've said already, it's kind of like, we are gonna have more local energy in the future, it's inevitable. We're gonna have all of these batteries on wheels, These electric vehicles, we're gonna have all of these new heating technologies in homes, local generation, the payback period for solar on homes at the moment, at what energy prices would have been, was two to four years for example, you know, subsidy-free, just as an example about how things change so rapidly with prices. What we still lack in this country is any sort of vision for the zero carbon energy future of the future, zero carbon energy future. So, you know, and that doesn't have to be complicated. We've had climate assemblies, we've had all sorts of things that have told us what people want and expect in that future. And it's not that complicated, environmentally compatible, just um, some people say better than what we've got. I love that one. But those things are really important. The thing that we miss is governments standing behind their side of the social contract saying, yeah, we'll deliver that for you, but then getting out of the way of those who are going to actually deliver it. We've heard earlier today in the Rev conference that basically we have the most centralized funding approach of just about any country in the world. The people who are going to deliver are inherently local for much of this. And what we need is vision from government, a release of powers, resources, the ability to pick up capabilities in local places, local authorities, local communities, um, and the power to go on and just do it in the vision of the people of that place, but with some coordination across the whole piece. That's really
4: important as well.
1: And how does all this tie in with, you know, the tech that's actually got to <laughs> sit behind all of it?
4: Um, from tech perspective, uh, so the the technology industry um, in the UK, for us, uh, is a huge success story. Uh, and the UK holds so much expertise in engineering and talent, and of course, without uh, ignoring the fact that we still need a lot of digital skills. But um, from our perspective, um, the rules have changed. We have to design, so for example, uh, demand-side response services or flexibility, and we're trying to adapt to to an old legacy system in terms of also the way we think about energy in general. We have to understand that the rules have changed and we have to think about the future, and the future is a lot more agile and a lot more flexible. We have to think about emerging technologies as well that will be helping the consumer to save money. Um, It will be helping the um, DNOs to um, dispatch the right energy at the right times, and it will help the system to be a lot more efficient and a lot more um, low-cost in general. So, from a tech perspective, I also have a bunch of numbers that I, I've ca- kind of compiled um, which we, maybe I can reference a little bit We later. love numbers but, on local zero. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we just have to change our mentality and uh, culture in government as well. Um, that is extremely important. Um, and the way that we think about renewable energy and the way we think about investment in uh, low uh, carbon assets. So my really vision is that we should be a lot more ambitious than we are at the moment in terms of government mm. and regulation. And we often get a lot of pushback as the tech industry from, uh, from base and off-gem. Well, um, we are designing a regulation. You, it's your job as the tech industry to come and play on the market, but in reality it really isn't. <laughs> so, so, so on
0: that point about ambition, and I should say, I don't do this in my spare time as my day job as an academic preparing uh, for teaching. I've spent a lot of time going through past white papers and UK industrial strategy. That's why I'm drinking a beer now, is to number the, numb the pain time. of the last few weeks. But what, what came through a lot of that is that I understand, uh, obviously, we've had a, a big change of uh, cabinet, we've got a new PM in the last few days. But smart comes through that, technology comes through that. that I don't think this day and age, Uh, Current politicians require much in the way of um, convincing that technology and smart is the way forward. What doesn't come through, in my view, I'd like to say an informed view, having read hundreds of pages on this, is local doesn't come through. Now, we're here at a smart and local energy systems summit. What I'd like to put to the panel is why local? Why not just smart? Why not smart and centralised? Why should we be looking at smart and decentralised? Why should we be thinking about local energy systems? And what does this do to get us to a fairer, more affordable, and lower carbon energy system? Now, I'm going to begin with Rob, not because he was first last time, but I think this was originally your question, Rob. So
2: (laughs) (laughs) So I hope you have an answer. (laughs) (laughs) But it is a good question. It's one that I've been asked all the way through the programme that I run. You know, for the last four years, that is a question that I've been consistently faced with. And I think we know a lot more about it now, actually. The the journey of the last four years for me has been justifying this programme originally on the basis that you needed to integrate bits of kit locally because that's where supply and demand came together. And we had new tech. That could do that really well over, you know, across millions and millions of bits of kit. So that that was all you know, all a good justification. And indeed, it's been great seeing some of our projects producing some of that. You know, I was talking to Reflex, our Orkney project earlier today, which is using some of their EVs and smart heating technologies to work with constrained wind wind farms to be able to unlock the constraint on that network by ramping up the demand on some of their their asset base. So that is all, you know, we're starting to see that working much better. I think our journey has been to understand some of the broader benefits beyond that technical system of taking a local approach. And this is really about being able to um, tailor the design of your energy system for Mm -hmm. the local environment, for the local uh, opportunities and its its, um, abilities to use waste heat, for example... So another of our projects is Green Skies in North London where they're trying to take waste heat from a lot of the commercial businesses in the area, server centres and that kind of thing, using the latest generation of heat network to then take that waste heat, take it to um, domestic uh, tower blocks that need heating, and upgrading the heat into uh, domestic uh, properties. So that can't be done everywhere. Mm. You have to have a particular kind of system to do that. So if we can tailor our energy system for the opportunities in particular places, we get a completely different range of benefits. We've learned that it's very much more about being able to tailor, being able to make use of the local environment, and being able to engage people, being able to engage local residents of that area in how they want their energy system designed, yeah, I, what I, benefits I, they want from it.
0: Mm. I, I love the point that you know, local is where things happen, it's where supply yeah. meets demand, it's where the project happens, but it's also where the benefit is felt. Karen, I'm gonna to come to you because UK 100 local is very much in your DNA. Yes. Um, so I guess you're sort of majoring on local, but smart is an element of the kind of projects you're looking at, why local? Why, why should this be on government's radar? Yeah.
3: It's where stuff happens, as you said. Uh, it's where the people are. It's where the, the, the communities can can feel the co-benefits. But in terms of why local authorities have such a fundamental role to play, it's because they understand the places that they are governing. They they know the communities. They know the businesses. They know the solutions that will work. And I think that more and more, because they have the planning role, they have a better appreciation than anybody else of how it all fits together. So you, where this is where we want to put our EV charging the, the requirements that we need to put in place in order to enable that, and I, I think that the solutions that exist are different everywhere, and that that can't be overstated. I think the learning will be replicable and transferable, I think, but the contexts are so different that it makes very, uh, it, it makes a lot of sense yeah. to do it, to do it locally. The work that that Rob's organisation, UKRI, have done around understanding the benefits, the financial benefits that come from taking a place-based approach as opposed to a place-agnostic approach really speaks for itself.
0: Um, um, Before I come to Jeff Teo, I'm going to start with you because I guess from a different angle, you're mainly smart, if I can characterize (laughs) very smart. Um, But in terms of Tech UK, (laughs) smart is the the number one thing. (laughs) Tech is. Where does
4: local fit in for you? Well, actually I had local planning on my notes as well because um, planning for um, infrastructure and mobility and um, buildings happens locally. Um, so crucial, mobility is local. So your local um, mobility and transport um, services so they're, not, well, they're not the same in every city and they're not the same in every neighborhood as well. Industry expertise—it's uh, also very local. So we we have different regions and different areas in the UK where, again, there holds very different expertise. Uh, and investment in infrastructure is also local. The pandemic, I think, has um, well, has showcased that we just mm. don't have the right information about consumers, and we don't have the right information where. Uh, where the benefits and where the um, energy uh, capacity is. Uh, So to be able to deliver what I like to actually call intelligent rather than smart, we have to create a better profile of people. And we have to understand all the different things that they do in their lives um, and everything for me, um, everything is lo- locally, or yeah. at least the intelligence is and the data is mm. on a local level. No, so. and, and
0: your point there about yeah. bespoke solutions, because no, no two places are necessarily identical. Absolutely, exactly. Spot on. And
4: um, just to mention one example, for example, um, Octopus Energy did a trial with uh, the Emirates Stadium, mm. which holds um, big batteries uh, for energy storage, and when they're not using it at the stadium, it's distributed locally. So um, why can't we utilize assets that not everybody can afford at the moment? At some point, we will afford them. We will be able to transition to the point where the technology will be um, a lot less costly and the return on investment will be a lot. um, Great.
0: um, I'm gonna hand over to Jeff. Final word on that, Jeff, if you have anything to to add? Just to jump in on the back of the the planning point, which I think is such an
5: important one, it's not just about energy planning. Actually, most people don't care what energy system they've got. Energy delivers services and it delivers what you need to be able to do the stuff you want to do. Therefore, it's inexorably linked with, say, spatial planning. You know, what community mm. do we want to live in? How do we want to um, build out the place we're in? How do we want to attract industry and all of that kind of stuff? Economic planning as well. So what local energy means in that context is what have we got most available to us? and how do we want to service our needs locally? But it's also, when you combine it with a smart, to my mind, what the smart does in all of this is it allows you to build the smallest energy system that you need to meet your energy needs locally, because it can help you overcome constraints in getting energy from A to B. It can maximize the utility of, say, the renewables you have available to you, which stops you having to import energy to an area, um, and it also gives all of those like wonderful opportunities to kind of like charge devices at the cheapest time, you know, which is good for the people using those devices, but it's also good for the local energy system because you don't need to build it as big. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's all linked together really strongly.
3: Yeah.
2: Thank you. <laughs> can, I just, can I just add to that as well? Because I think that's a really good point. And it's, it's not only about being able to build the smaller system, but it's about being able to interoperate from a single asset in somebody's house all the way up to a national system. Yeah. And we, t- we very often talk about local or national. Mm. It's not about local or national, it's about maximizing the local benefits, but within a national system yeah. and making that system work right across those scales in the best possible way for everybody who's paying for that yeah. system um, and, and living in those places. So I, think, I, th-
3: yeah. I think that energy thing is really important as well because you cannot stress hardly enough how people would like to minimise the amount of time the road in front of their house is dug up. So if we can be a little bit more cohesive about our planning from that perspective, then we will have you know the dream of the smart local energy system, I think.
1: <laughs> I can't, yes, definitely. I mean, where I live, I live right on the boundary of two different local authority areas actually. And it's almost impossible to get anywhere right now because the roads are just being dug up everywhere. And, and in fact, my husband, who doesn't really engage with my work at all, and won't be listening to this. Uh, <laughs> constantly moans about the lack of coordinated planning. So I think we can probably all engage with that. So I want to jump in on something which I think underlines a number of the conversations we're having. Because we're talking about how do, we, how do we maximize the use of, of energy locally in the, the smartest way and, and feed up. And one of the things that, you know, one of our largest energy uses is in heating. And we hear a lot about heat pumps and we hear a lot about flexibility. And I think this is very, very exciting stuff. And at the same time, I mean, Matt, you you talked about this earlier, the number of buildings that we've got that are still very poor performance in Mm -hmm. terms of their energy efficiency. And energy efficiency, I don't know. I don't know if it's not as sexy as a heat pump or an EV, or a, yeah. (laughs)
0: sexy than Becky, there's nothing (laughs) sexier than lock lagging, trust me.
1: (laughs) So um, how do we start to, you know, to, to really maximize this, we need to have our building stock that's capable of enabling that flexibility, yet we don't seem to be focusing enough on the energy efficiency side of the equation, you know. Is it because there's a perspective that that's already something that's been dealt with? Is it because there's not a business case? How important is this energy efficiency component to the ability to deliver what we want to deliver? And if it's fundamentally important, what needs to change to support that? I mean, Karen, you're you're probably right in this space with a lot of local authorities who are driving the way forward in, in some capacities
3: sure it's a really complex problem I think to try and do your question justice would be very difficult but I'll, I'll do my best with some key musings but I think that because the housing stock is made up of millions of individual properties where there will be some commonalities but ultimately one size fits all approach makes it very difficult to do anything at scale at the moment Um, and I think that there's a real disparity between the provisions that are made for the able to pay market where perhaps the the largest of gains would be achieved. I I don't have any scientific information to back that up but it seems like that's a key problem. There's a lot of different pots of money available from the government. They're all very short term. You have to jump through a lot of hoops to get them and the information is very disparate and difficult to, to navigate. So I have worked in this sector for 20 years. I have Single glazed windows at home. And I'm ashamed to admit it, but it's true uh, because I can't get a double glazing person to answer my phone calls or tell me how much it's going to cost. So the fabric first approach is clearly the one that we need to be taking to make sure our housing stock is as efficient as it possibly can be. But what that means in practice is a multitude of different things coming together at scale. Uh, The conversation about skills earlier, time and again, this is identified as a bit of a policy whole the committee on climate change said that, you know the government is significantly underperforming on this the recent mm-hmm. energy bill doesn't mention energy efficiency so yeah that there is a huge vacuum I think local authorities are doing what they can but ultimately they only have agency over their social housing some of them don't even have that so I think that whilst they only have very much kind of information providing knowledge sharing role and they don't have an active role in, in delivering we're not going to get the gains at scale that we need but it is a huge priority and we are advocating very strongly that energy efficiency is is taken as an approach of government immediately um because i think that before we do that everything else as much as it will achieve will not solve the problem and will not get us to net zero
1: mm, and Just a tally, I think Jeff, you've received two audience applauses and Karen, you've now got one. So, it's uh, not a
0: competition.
1: Yeah. Quality,
0: not quantity. Um,
1: but no, I, so Jeff, I saw you nodding along. I'm gonna I'm gonna let you bat that back in a minute. But Rob, I just want to turn to you first and think about some of the PIFA projects because for energy efficiency, we're still relying on this individual approach, like individuals in their home becoming experts. I'm, I have no idea if my home is insulated. I expect not. I have got double glazed windows because I inherited them, but I have absolutely no idea and no idea where to go to for advice. Yeah. What we're seeing in the PIFA projects is a shift away from this very individualistic approach to looking at how we can do things at that local scale, how we can transition local energy systems, not every single individual home, but mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of addressing some of that challenge. Can we bring, you know, efficiency into that? Is there is there a capacity to do that?
2: Of, of course we, we can bring efficiency into that. And some of our projects are, you know, looking at a town scale and trying to understand, at the very least, understand the building-by-building building nature of their town and what needs to be done from an energy efficiency point of view in order to get the building fabric up, which, you know, Karen's absolutely right. It's fundamental. It's the it's the basic mm-hmm. building block of a, of an efficient energy system. And we are... Pretty much nowhere on it, to be honest. I think there's a missing service in our in our market at the moment, and it's probably difficult to supply at the moment. But there's something that integrates um, fabric efficiency with energy performance and bills over a longer longer period of time, and a kind of you know somebody who comes into your house, your house that you don't know if it's <laughs> don't know if it's insulated or not, and will tell you if it is. And we'll offer you, you know, a service to come in and do your optimum insulation and take some of your savings to pay for that over a 20, 30-year period. Maybe it stays with the house rather than the owner to get over that you know, that kind of issue. But there is this, there is this missing link, I think, with, with energy efficiency. I think one thing we do know from the um, Green Homes Grant, when was that, two, three years ago, two, is eight, that two. you just can't do this from a kind of national um, basis. The one bit of that that did work well was the bit that local authorities delivered, because they were able to target it in the right way. They were able to, you know, provide what their local communities needed. Mm. So I think you know there's a, there's a really good basis there for saying that it should be part of developing a, a local um, smart energy system, and local authorities are probably well placed to try and to try and do that. Applause. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jeremy. So,
1: and I really like that. I mean, and I, to an extent, I agree, and I also worry, because we see huge advances in parts of the country where local authorities have people in them that are thinking in this area, pushing things forward and really addressing the challenge. And in other areas, there may be uh, capacity challenges, resource challenges, and so on. So if it's not being driven at national level, like I get that, but what, is nat- what do we need to change at the national level? And Jeff, I'm looking very closely at you here. Um, what, do we, what needs to happen at the national level to enable this to be delivered in a fair way across the UK, so that we don't leave parts of the UK behind?
2: Mm.
5: All right. So there's a couple of things. So I said it in my opening comments, but in case it doesn't make it into the final cut, the responsibility of national—and I do mean national governments—in this respect. Thank you. Yes, I know, Jen. I didn't say it earlier. Is vision in this respect? You know, they are the democratically elected representatives of the people. Therefore, they should be able to take the vision of that people and in and put it in place um, to basically say, this is what we are going to be in terms of energy, in terms of economy, in terms of all of that other stuff. So to my mind, that looks like in this case, it's not just energy efficiency is such an important part of hitting zero carbon. It also then comes with teeth from national governments. So, for example, zero carbon new build standards that are actually zero carbon and standards, <laughs> and not just aroundable, but also probably some sort of mandate on the energy efficiency of both private properties and private rented sector and social housing. Bring them up. Don't then do a, another scheme to try and nationalize how you kind of fund that Put the responsibility, as I said before, the resources, the capabilities, down to those that are going to deliver it. Because you need to do that in the local by local approaches. Housing types differ, um, resources differ, capabilities differ. It has to come down, but it can't just come down with a hollowed-out kind of local authority. Um, It has to come with the skills, the training, the kind of like all of that um, stuff that's coming alongside it. So yeah, it's massively important. And one final point. If you were trying to design a series of energy efficiency funding mechanisms designed to confuse and not deliver anything, um, then the UK would be the place you would go to for the number one example of how not to do
1: it.
0: So in many ways, you know, this panel's all been about presenting a, a vision of the future, which you would hope in a sensible world, I'll leave it up to you to decide whether we live in that or not, you would see funding follow. Public, private, and would start to fulfil that vision. But actually, you know, without the money, the vision is left unfulfilled. So one of the questions here is actually, you know, where's the money going to come from for this? And, and sitting on the panel here, we've got a number of people who I think can offer different perspectives. Tio, maybe from a kind of you know, a technology company perspective, where's the investment going to come from? Karen, councils. Rob, you've obviously been involved. Very, very heavily with the PIFA program, which is, was funded through the industrial strategy. So, so where, where does the money come from for SLES? Because Lord knows we're going to need a lot. Who pays to fulfill this vision? Maybe too. if we can just, I'm, I'm interested from an industry perspective. Where do you see the money kind of, flow? is this going to come in through big companies selling stuff to, cons- selling kit to consumers, individual consumers, or are we looking at a more coordinated, local, ground-up approach supported by national government, which I think is what Jeff was painting a picture of?
4: So I think a lot of the tech industry is actually doing, um, there's a lot of effort to communicate properly on uh, what the technology is capable of doing. So uh, when companies are working, for example, with local authorities, they understand that there is a lack of resources, there's a lack of knowledge, um, and there's a lot of uh, uh, intent to understand and to help local authorities, for example, to analyze their data better, to put together their investment portfolios better uh, in a better way, and to, to choose essentially the right technology, because not all tech solutions will will work for every for everywhere. We, in other cases, for example, we also, for example, in the water sector, it's I think it's a good example. It's it's about uh, understanding. Local infrastructure as well, and what is the right solution? Because in some cases it will be machine learning mechanisms, in other cases will be just simple data analytics. But then, um, in some uh, more significant cases, for example, reducing energy, reducing the energy consumption for water treatment plants, mm. it, it would be creating a digital twin. So,
0: but who, who is investing here? Who is the who pays for SLES?
4: So, I think from from tech perspective, it's it's very different. Uh, It would be uh, VC investment in some cases. In other cases, it would be the client, for example, the water utility, uh, when they have analyzed and created a financial portfolio to understand what kind of technology Mm. will give them that return on investment. Um, And for example, I have a... Number here for you. Uh, for example, Mop uh, McDonald built a uh, digital twin for water care and they returned the investment 400% in two years. So they created a greater accuracy um, of determining water supply and wastewater network capacity, for example. Um, and I think it's understanding the numbers together yeah. with, uh, with the provider. And in some cases, it might not work because people want to sell you stuff.
0: Quite right. But to get to the stuff that you can sell, Rob, I'm going to come to you now because PIFA, Prospering from the Energy Revolution Fund, at its heart was, if I may characterize it, an innovation program. Mm -hmm. It was about getting these ideas on the ground, proving concept, and then also getting it into neighborhoods and on the ground. So it's innovation. And that brings a whole different kind of discussion around who pays for that because it's risky. So perspectives just on how we yeah, get this ready for the
2: market. Who pays? So, I mean, from that that program's perspective, it's, it's interesting. One of the things we measure is how much private money comes in with the public money for an innovation program like that. And you know, within the life of the program, we get about one to one. So, businesses fund the projects alongside us. But um, outside of that direct investment, we've seen about four to one investment in the businesses involved by VCs or by um, buyouts because they, they see the opportunity from, uh, from these businesses and want to invest in their scaling up. So there's a, there's a whole business investment side that's starting to build, I think. But I think the, the heart of the question you're asking really is about how do we transform our, our, our cities and that's not going to come through a few VCs. That's a, you know It's a huge quantity of money. Yeah. And there isn't the quantity of money in public works loan board funding, well, for example. We have to yeah. bring the private sector. We um, have to bring the, the project investors in to take part alongside yeah. our public funding. And, our, and, and UKIP will play a part in this as well.
0: And, and I think, Karen, maybe UK100 perspective on this? I mean, obviously, Mm -hmm. local authority budgets have been slashed over the last decade. Um, Local authorities, I'm guessing, aren't in the position to bankroll this stuff. So where are they looking?
3: So I think starting from base principles again, just like with the energy system needing transformation, I think the financing system needs transformation as well for these projects. I think we need Mm -hmm. to do things differently. We need new finance models, new approaches to really help with that that market generation. So, Rob, I completely agree with you. I think the Infrastructure Bank has a role to play here to start getting the ball rolling, and it's really encouraging to see as well that energy efficiency will play a part in that to, to some degree. But we're seeing new mechanisms emerging kind of through necessity. So community uh, municipal bonds have been mm. you know, launched within the past 12 months, where communities are coming together in, I think it was Leeds, uh, less of a kind of community assembly on that, but we've, we've got some money. What can we do with it? You know, take take it and, and do some stuff. And yeah, there are five pilots now across the UK where people have brought yeah. their communities together to create bonds for, for local net zero projects, which is really encouraging. Yeah,
0: and in fact, we covered but, it on the pod uh, a few months back. Fantastic. Um, yeah, um, abundance were yeah. issuing yeah. these. Mark Davis at Leeds University supported it. Really fascinating stuff. But Citizens bankrolling. Local yeah, authority because
3: you're right, and I think the, the point we made earlier about the, the the loops that that local authorities have to jump through to get the funding that they do get the short term uh, very very specifically allocated funding and that implies that you have the capacity within your local authority to have people writing those bids mm. that may or may not be successful so that model is certainly broken. we need a longer term uh, longer term investment. Uh, with a longer term to spend the money uh, coming from, from government funds. And if I can be uh, a little bit controversial for a minute, $9 billion was announced for uh, energy efficiency in the government's manifesto, and we're still yet to, to know what's happening with at least a third of that. So, you know, there's a significant chunk of money that could play a really significant role in, in the rollout of uh, smart local energy systems, but we're just waiting to find out how it's going to be deployed.
1: I want to turn the conversation a little bit to something that we haven't talked much about yet, which is people, the people in smart local energy systems. So how, how important is it to engage people and how do we engage them, so Karen, you just mentioned uh, citizens' assemblies like that 's mm-hmm. certainly one way of engaging it 's a different way of engaging than we might have seen you know when we 're thinking about um, treating people as, as customers who might be able to purchase some of these uh, innovative solutions um, or are there other ways in which they could be engaged and i mean Rob i 'm sort of looking to you initially because you know reflecting on the the spectrum of projects that you've seen, you know, how how important are people in in delivering all of this, and what roles do people really need to play?
2: Um, <laughs> well, nothing gets delivered without people, I don't think. Um, I think um, it depends how smart the system is.
1: <laughs> <laughs> is that right? Um, Back to the Jetsons, there. Yeah, exactly.
2: I, I mean, I think this this idea of engaging. The end, the end users of our system, you know, me, me and you who pay the energy bills, is a really interesting um, question. Um, you know, some people are very ahead of the curve and want to play around with every asset in their house and do the right thing with adjusting their demand profile. We have one yeah, right Jeff's here. one. <laughs> I know, I've seen him on Twitter. Um, but there are 99% of people who really won't be ever doing that, and we're just going to have to do it just going to have to do it for them. Um, and I don't, you know, engagement um, means, I think, for the vast majority of people, providing something that works, that's going to be good value to them, that's going to be comfortable and going to learn about, probably learn about what they do with their lives and, and optimise it for them. I think that's where we have to head with engagement as a, as a you know, if I'm thinking about it from a a kind of product sales point of view. Um, that's where we have to en- engage people better is in the way that we design our products and services to meet people's needs. I've hate. i I've got a real bugbear about behaviour change and people constantly talking about um, you know, needing people to change their behaviour. We don't change our behaviour. We just don't. We need to provide a range of services that meet the needs of different groups of people and provide, uh, provide their net zero lives in future. That's, that's my view.
1: Come on, Jeff. You're like, our guinea pig with a lot of these solutions, yeah. aren't you? Je- Jeff, Jeff's actually the, the one person that probably will change his behavior. <laughs>
5: yeah,
0: he's like, no, I won't. Constantly.
5: <laughs> yeah, constantly. But, um, but we, we, I was on a previous local zero pod, and we all agreed that um, there was a question about what would happen if we had a million Jeffs. And I think the answer was it would be a disaster. <laughs> um, because I do play, and you don't want a million Jeffs playing with the energy system,
2: broadly speaking.
5: So, so in, in terms of, so I think i I'm points. just
1: scared of the vision yeah, of a million I Jeffs.
2: Okay,
0: yes. I'm going back to that conversation, in my mind.
2: Jeff, just oh, no, realising
0: how abstract it was now. Yeah, yeah. See, I'd really love it if we could digital twin that though.
1: <laughs> right.
5: Um, so, so coming back to a point I made earlier, I think. Engagement's gonna mean lots of different things, but one of them, um, linking with the point about investment actually, is thinking about local energy, what you want in terms of engagement is a really clear idea about what the local people of that place value um, and need and prefer. Um, Because that gives, you know, whoever's gonna be taking decisions about energy a really clear mandate to go do it. But also it gives a lot of certainty So therefore, if you want in that place to then drive investment, you say, well, we are definitely going to build this, so come invest, come help us do that. Mm -hmm. And actually, it's much easier to get certainty um, on local things with these really complex systems than it is um, for a whole national system where you've got vast amounts of uncertainty. So that that engagement is crucial, and I think that can only be done locally. The the engagement of people within that energy system um, should be according to their desire to engage with that the energy system. And frankly, Rob's spot on. 99, well, maybe 90% of people, actually. If you, do, if you look at surveying and that kind of thing, there's about 10% of geeks out there, or variants on the spectrum.
0: Um, 90% of whom are in
5: here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, as it happens, all of the research um, on people and smart stuff has been done on the geeks yep. and then extrapolated yeah, 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 to the rest yeah. of people who really are <laughs> not the same. So what we need, um, and she will definitely gonna have a question on this in a minute about um, you know, what we actually need is research on normal people yep. <laughs> and what they are prepared to accept, what they want to do within this, because that's gonna help businesses who is gonna be helping people through this zero carbon journey mm. design their propositions about what people actually want and how much they're prepared to engage mm-hmm. and how much they're prepared to seed, say to a third party, to automate some of this stuff um, with permission, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is the most important thing. Um, but yeah, don't, don't build a system around a million jets.
1: Mm-hmm. No, no, and I'm, I, I mean, I used to think that I was a geek and I'm the total opposite of You're, you, j- <laughs> yeah I know, I used to think I was, um, and then I got my, my EV and um, I tried to, to figure out how the charger would work.
5: <laughs> Six weeks.
1: <laughs> I even, I even after after chatting to Jeff, moved to the uh, the octopus um, tariff where I get really cheap electricity from in the middle of the night for my EV, and that was great advice. Other suppliers ex- are available. <laughs> <laughs> except that it took me about six weeks to figure out how to work the charger to get it to charge. That time period, and that was great for a bit, and then the entire charger stopped working, and so instead of fixing it, we just ran a cable in through our garage and just charged <laughs> on a re- wheel. And I'm somebody that works in this space. I'm an engineer by background. Like I should get this. Yeah, I know. And so, like, and I'm looking at the. the So, how do we change the way that we design our tech, deploy our tech, and support people so that people that are like me? In fact, people that are even, you know, how does my grand use it?
4: Yes, great question. so, I definitely agree on what Rob and Jeff have said. Uh, I don't think that there's going to be a lot of people that will be engaging with their smart home devices. So, the, the I think the the normal person would like to go home, have a glass of wine or, or a soft drink, cook, sit on the sofa, whatever, and not to pay uh, millions of pounds <laughs> in energy bills, uh, right? Um, so... There's a couple of things. Um, The uh, tech industry is thinking about what is the better uh, collection of data and creating those profiles. So um, we've done some research in our connected homework uh, where we've understood that, for example, most percentage of people who have energy efficiency technology uh, in the home are actually for example, uh, monitoring and engaging with it through a smartphone. So if, if you know this information, you can then easily think about what are the um, services that I could provide for a smartphone rather than a computer or a website or, um, or mail or whatever it is. Then there will be other products and services that people will be engaging in a very different, different way. For example, we saw that Some of uh, other smart home devices like entertainment is mostly um, controlled by a computer because it might be at the different times of days, etc. Having this um, understanding is, is extremely important, interoperability, and we're still working towards that interoperable environment where you can pair up devices and easily switch them and uh, play around with them in the house mm. um, without having to take mm. um, extra time to understand your, yeah. your home charger as well.
0: So, I'm conscious we're pretty much out of time. However, if we maybe take two, two questions and, then, and we'll um, deal with them in turn, and then mm-hmm. I think we'll let you uh, go your separate ways. If, if, right. she'll, sorry, if we could just keep the questions short. clipped, short and brief. Please, I've said the same thing three times. <laughs> yeah, this okay.
6: uh, it turns out there are a million Jeffs. If you take the adult population of Britain, about 40 million, 2.5%, which is the innovator group in Rogers' uh, diffusion of innovation theory, that's a million adults. Um, but my point was actually about efficiency. Why doesn't efficiency work? Because it's a negative proposition. I have a house, I call it Jeff, G E O F F, quite important distinction. Um, It's inefficient, it's ineffective. I have to sort it out, it is broken. There's nothing like the conversation that you could have if you said, I want to make it productive. I want to upgrade it, I want to make it shiny and new and lovely. We need to change how we're talking about what we're trying to do. We're not trying to fix broken things, even though that's what they are. We're trying to make fantastic new things.
0: What do we think of that? The question, please. That was the question.
6: What do we think of that?
0: Okay. Thank you. And, hey.
3: Local authorities are doing what they can with what they have, and many of them are very ambitious and being quite effective at that. But I think that, that local democracy isn't the problem, it's, it's the, the lack of uh, long term support for them to be able to deliver net zero and smart local energy. Mm. And does, does anyone want
1: to answer the question of, of how we make Jeff more efficient rather than sexy?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm prepared to answer that. Jeff. Uh, Jeff. yes. Yeah, it could not be
5: more Please. sexy. Please um, so it, it came back to something I said early doors, actually, when I was there was a really good survey from UK quite a a UK Energy Research Center, quite a while back, and they asked people, saying, Look, you're gonna have to pay to get to it was 80% carbon target, but to get to net zero, mm. let's say it. What do you expect in return? So it's like the social contract bit. The thing that came out of that that I really loved was that they said lots of really important things, but the one thing they said is it has to be better mm-hmm. than what it is today, and that's Huell's point. So it's not we're, gonna go, and, we're going, gonna go and fix Jeff. What it is is <laughs> we're gonna we're make-, gonna Jeff make... Better. I was about to say make Jeff more pleasurable <laughs> but I think that's what I mean so it's um you know in this instance energy efficiency energy efficiency means um more comfortable you know that it's not just kind of like saving your money blah 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 it's kind of like I'm don't I am do not i feel more comfortable in my own home the so Jeff you know, becomes a more pleasant experience yeah so I think you're making Jeff more comfortable more pleasurable smarter um and better in every way. Um, You could not make Jeff more productive.
1: (laughs) And now the vision of a thousand or a million Jeffs terrifies me even more. Um, I'd like to to ask a question to each of our panel members to to wrap it up. We're talking about all of this. It's a fantastic vision, but actually to deliver this requires fundamental changes to how the UK operates. So, how do we persuade our policymakers and government to make these changes? Rob, this is an issue you have been grappling with.
2: <laughs> it is indeed, yeah. And, and whoever asked the question is absolutely right. It does require a different way of thinking about the system. It's, it's not going to be the same system as Jeff was mentioning earlier. We know it's not going to be the same system. I think we just need to accept that and and move to the new system with... with um, with a wholehearted uh, way of going about things. I think that we need to be clearer about the benefits of this approach. So I think that is the heart of this. Because it does require a different way of governing the system, and that's inherently hard for Bayes and Offchem to, to deal with, we have to lead with the benefits. We have to explain why this is going to create a better way to net zero and sell it in a much better way. I think that's the, that's, that's the key to it for me.
4: Um, I think the current energy crisis is actually a great opportunity for us to stress out how we fundamentally have to change behavior and, well, not behavior, but the way we think about the energy system. (laughs) Sorry, Rob. (laughs) Um, And I also think that presenting the economic case for change and presenting the opportunities, especially in uh, um, digitalization of the, of the system, and how much money would that, for one, save, and how much money we could also attract within the UK for investment, because if we uh, are, are, are utilizing uh, the tech talent and the tech resources in the UK, we could strive to become a leader in, in, in the space, so why not, take all of those uh, great technological advancements, um, for example, AI and quantum computing and apply it in uh, in a new way uh, in infrastructure and create that investment case for international and local growth. Thanks. Growth was
3: going to be the word I was using. I think that that is going to be the message that resonates as much as that may run counter to... I suppose uh, perhaps more conventional understandings of what net zero delivery may may look like, but I I think that that we have to sell this in a in a where the benefits are. I completely agree with with what uh, Rob said. Now, as a recovering academic, um, <laughs> 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 I, I I was involved in a project that was looking at visioning and backcasting. So, where do we want to be in 2050? How do we fill in the gaps between now and there to get there? And I think there's, <clears throat> there's a lot of potential in that approach. I think that it helps to reframe and to better understand some of the transformation that is required. I don't think that's something we can sell to the government. But I think that as a community uh, that is working towards making the case, making the proposition, making it sound like something um, that can be delivered, that's probably a useful starting point for us.
1: Thanks. Anna. You're the recovering academic. Jeff. as a recovering regulator, you get the last say. How do we persuade policymakers to make this change?
5: So, I'll come back to what I said at the start. Smart local energy systems within whatever the rest of the energy system is, is the most productive, cheapest, and most acceptable way to get to zero carbon because it bakes in a lot of that democracy. So, I also said at the start that government needs... governments... Need to set a vision, and then they need to do everything they can to enable that to happen, and then they need to get out of the way. So successful countries that have delivered consistent, very high, and very high renewables, very high zero carbon, uh, very zero carbon economies um, have basically had political consensus and an agreement to take the energy decision making out of politics and then devolve it down to those who are actually best placed to deliver. I've been saying it for years that we need something like that in the UK, but I really think we do because it's too political and it doesn't get anywhere fast. So we need vision enablement and get out of the way.
1: (laughs) So I just want to say a huge, huge, huge thank you to our guests today and also to our fabulous live audience. You have been listening to Local Zero. If you haven't already, go and find us and follow us on Twitter at Local Zero Pods. Get involved with discussions. Find us wherever you get your uh, your podcast from. We're on every platform you can think of. Just search Local Zero and subscribe and Email us, localzeropod at gmail.com. We will do our best to respond to any requests. Um, but for now, thank you and goodbye. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Produced by the Spoken Media.